After tonight's program, you'll have the opportunity to purchase books written by our tonight's speakers, including White Identity Politics by Ashley Jardina and White Shift by Eric Kaufman. Eric will also be around after um, the program to chat and to sign books. Um, also, Kalila Brown-Dean has a book coming out soon called Identity Politics in the U.S., and there are flyers with order forms for any if you want to order one with a 20% discount. Um, finally, we also have copies of Eli Saslow's book, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. Um, next week's speaker is the subject of that book. Um, so now back to tonight's program. I'm glad you're all here, and I hope that you are looking forward to an hour and a half of interesting information. I'm now happy to introduce you to Dr. Danielle Vinson, Professor of Politics and International Affairs here at Furman, who is our moderator for the evening. Thank you, Nancy, and good evening to all of you. I'm happy to be here this evening as we explore some difficult and complicated issues of identity, race, and politics. Tonight's program, Multiculturalism and the Future of White Identity, is the second session of this year's Straight Talk series. Last week, those of you who were here heard from Dr. Bart Bonakowski about how current trends toward authoritarianism, populism, and nationalism combined to give rise to radical politics, and we thought about what the trend means for democracy. Tonight, we're going to shift gears a little bit from the macro-level big picture to think more about the trends we're seeing in individual attitudes as we face a world whose demographics are shifting at a pace that many find dizzying. We title tonight's session Culture Wars because conservatives who identify strongly with their white group are often at odds with cosmopolitans who celebrate the growing multiculturalism. We're going to hear from three professors, one from the South, one from the North, and one from across the pond who grew up in Hong Kong and Canada. Um, I believe I've got that right. Uh, it's it, it, maybe not in that order, but uh, he's, he's, he's been around. Uh, to hear their varying perspectives on what changing demographics mean for the future of white majorities and how countries like the U.S. and those in Western Europe can come together across broad political divides. We'll examine some difficult questions su such as, should conservatives be able to express a sense of loss without being labeled racist? How is demographic change transforming Western politics? And how should we think about the future of white, of, of white majorities and the future of minorities? As we did last week, we'll give you an opportunity to submit questions via text. If you would like to ask a question of any of our speakers, please send it to the number on your screen and include your name. We have Dr. Bouquet Ostas and two students from our advanced team who are writing down your questions, and the students will share those a little later in our discussion. We begin tonight with two 20-minute presentations, one by Dr. Eric Kaufman and one by Dr. Ashley Jardina, both of whom have done extensive research on white identity and shifting demographics. They will then be joined by Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean for a conversation about white identity politics and racial attitudes. Allow me first to introduce you, or first to tell you about Dr. Brown-Dean. She's an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut, where her research interests center on voting rights, election administration, and public policy. 
Her commentary appears in over 400 media outlets, including the New York Times, CNN, NPR, Fox News Radio, Democracy Now!, Al Jazeera, and The Hill. She has the gamut covered. Her forthcoming book, which I understand she actually was able to hold in her hand last night for the first time, uh, is entitled Identity Politics in the United States, and it looks at how conflicts over group identity are an inescapable feature of American political development. A graduate of the University of Virginia, she received her Ph.D. from The Ohio State University. Dr. Brown-Dean, welcome, and thank you for being here with us this evening. Dr. Jardina comes to us from Duke University, and she's the author of the book White Identity Politics, which, as Nancy mentioned, is for sale in the library if you're interested in purchasing a copy. Her research explores the nature of racial attitudes, the development of group identities, and the way in which these factors influence political preferences and behavior. White Identity Politics explores the conditions under which white racial identification and white consciousness among white Americans is a salient and significant predictor of policies, candidates, and attitudes toward racial and ethnic groups. Dr. Jardina received her BA, MA, and PhD from the University of Michigan. Dr. Jardina, welcome. We're glad you're here. Our first speaker this evening is Dr. Eric Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman is a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. He's the author of White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities, which is also available for purchase in the library. He's written other books, excuse me, in the lobby, not the library. <laughs> Cannot read my writing. Uh, he has written other books, including texts focusing on the white British response to ethnic change, demography, and politics in the 21st century, and the decline of dominant ethnicity in the U.S. An editor of the journal Nations and Nationalism, he's written for Newsweek International, Foreign Policy, and Prospect Magazines, and blogs at Huffington Post. Dr. Kaufman received his Ph.D. from the London School of Economics and Political Science and his B.A. from the University of Western Ontario. It is my pleasure to invite Dr. Kaufman to the stage. Please join me in giving him a warm welcome. Thanks, Danielle, and uh, delighted to be here at uh, Furman. This has got to be the best organized talk I've ever been to. I mean, I, we were told to be back there at, four, four, or at 14 minutes past the hour, which I thought was pretty precise. Um, okay. So uh, what I'm going to be talking to you about is this, this title, Majority Ethnicity, the Cultural Left and the Rise of Populism. Uh, and I think there's a relationship here. But the, the, the key category is this idea of ethnic majorities. So people think of ethnic groups as minorities. But actually, um, ethnicity is defined by a belief in common ancestry. So identifying with a community um, that has a belief in, in a particular myth of ancestry. Um, ethnic groups are actually not exactly the same as race. So for example, if you think about the white British as um, the largest group in, in Britain, uh, there are actually white Eastern Europeans who would not be part of that category. So the ethnic group can be narrower than the racial white group, which is a piece of the color spectrum, if you like. Or actually ethnicity, as I'll argue in the future, is probably going to be broader than race. So you'll be able to have different racial groups within the same ethnic group, which already, by the way, exists if you think about uh, Latinos, if you think about Hawaiians, if you think about uh, Central, Central Asian groups, you've got a range of different racial types within the same ethnic group. So that's, I think, where we're headed. 
But much of my book, White Shift, is really about populism. So it's the response of these ethnic majorities to demographic shifts. And those shifts are going to be profound. We know in the U.S., for example, the white uh, share has dropped from about sort of 80, 85 percent uh, around 1960 to something like 60 percent today. Uh, in Canada, where I'm from, um, it was about 80 percent white in 2006. But the pro projections are that by 2106 in 100 years, instead of 80% white, 20% non-white, the proportions could be reversed. So that's the sort of scale of the speed uh, that we are looking at um, under current assumptions of immigration levels. And that's really, I think, the key issue that's redefining our politics, and it's why right-wing populism is on the rise in Western Europe and also uh, in North America. I also want to say something about, though, about nation, which is, in, this, in the case of the United States, that would be America and the American nation, which is a territorial and political uh, entity that includes multiple ethnic groups, including the white majority ethnic group. And actually, nation also matters because national identity is not just, if we take the U.S. case, it's not just the American creed and the Statue of Liberty, which everyone can more or less agree on. People, people's national identity also includes a lot of everyday things, landscape, history, and the ethnic composition of the country may be part of what somebody's attached to in a country. So actually, you can get minorities, particularly uh, Asian and Hispanic conservatives, who will also see the change in the ethnic composition of a country and not and, and be somewhat uneasy about that. So it's not just white majorities, but it is also conservative minorities who are part of this movement and um, voting for populism. So I'll talk about that perhaps in the Q&A. Um, so we can look at this picture of a messy desk. Now what, is this, what can this possibly have to do with the kinds of people who vote for populist right parties. Um, it's totally non-political. What does that have to do with voting for populist right parties? Uh, well, actually, it is not unrelated. <laughs> so so um, this is from a great uh, data source uh, for the United Kingdom. And I'm only looking at young people, 18 to 24, uh, who are from upper or middle class backgrounds, white British only. And what you can actually see is that people who want much tighter restrictions on immigration over here, um, about 70% of them say their workspace is neat and tidy, and only 30% that it's messy and disorganized. Now, of course, there's still 30% with a messy desk who are saying we want a lot less immigration. But if you look over here at people who want much looser uh, restrictions on immigration, it's pretty much tied at about 50-50, neat and messy. Actually, that is a significant relationship, and it is meaningful, actually. Um, there is a relationship between these very non-political attitudes and your views on immigration, which is ultimately what I think is behind right-wing populism. Next slide. Okay. Roger Federer. Um, so I live in London, uh, and I live in a, a, su a suburb of London called Wimbledon, which, is, which has a sort of annual tennis championship you're probably aware of. Um, my son was a ball boy there, by the way. Um, and so uh, at Wimbledon, there's a dress code. You have to wear your tennis whites. Uh, now, there's some freedom in, in the style you want to wear, but there is a rule that's tennis whites only. Um, if we ask people, again, <laughs> 18 to 24-year-olds from the same white British upper middle class group, again, those who say much tighter restrictions, they're about split on whether these dress, strict dress codes should be in place or not. Um, however, those who want much looser uh, immigration, um, who are more pro-immigration, only 4% agree with the Wimbledon dress code, and si almost 60% disagree. So that's, again, another indication 
of some kind of psychological orientation that's underlying some of these uh, attitudes. Okay, um, I am Canadian and we have a short summer, but uh, often people will go to a lake like this and uh, there's even some canoes there. Um, the question is, of course, do you go on vacation to the same place every year or a different place every year? Um, and lo and behold, uh, those who want much tighter immigration, it's 47% who go to the same place on holiday every year versus about 39 for those who, who don't. Uh, but for those who, want, who are more liberal on immigration, it's heavily people who don't go to the same place on holiday every year. It's about a 3-1 relationship. Now, what is this all about? Well, what this is all about, essentially, as Jonathan Haidt, who uh, is a well-known psychologist, argues, uh, essentially, people who are, have a certain personality that likes diversity and change, uh, new experience, they will be more likely to be open to things like diversification of the population. But another type of person uh, actually prefers stability and order. That kind of person sees diversity and difference as disorder. If you think about that messy desk or you think about the Wimbledon dress coat, the way that's being interpreted is very different if you have this orientation towards seeing difference as disorder. Similarly, with going on holiday a different place each year, for some people, change is loss. It's not excitement. And, and that actually, the difference between those orientations at a, psych, at a deep value psychological level is very important. Jonathan Haidt makes this point. What kinds of people would join a global community welcoming people from every discipline and culture seeking a deeper understanding of the world? Uh, that's not going to be somebody who scores low on, for example, one of the big five personality traits called openness. Uh, this is, according to, to uh, uh, social psychologists, between a third and a half heritable. So it is not something that is something you can easily teach people. You can't necessarily teach people to love diversity and change if they don't love diversity and change. Some people you can, but some people you cannot. It's, if it is something that's deeply psychological, it's going to become uh, important also when you have large-scale social change. And that is one of the reasons why uh, this psychological divide, some have called it open-closed, uh, some don't like those terms, but that cuts across the old left-right economic divide between people who want low tax uh, and those who want higher tax and more welfare and redistribution. The economic issues are being eclipsed by these open-closed cultural values issues, primarily around immigration in Western countries. So the next message really is, when we're trying to explain uh, right-wing populism, it's not the economy, stupid. Now, I'm not going to say it's got nothing to do with people feeling left out of the global economy or marginalized from the major uh, dynamic metropolitan areas. However, a lot of this is, again comes down to the individual level. In the Brexit vote, the Brexit vote's kind of tearing apart Britain right now, so it's kind of nice to have a breather being over here. Um, but uh, but um, actually, two-person couple households, 25% have a split on the Brexit vote. Four-person households, half have a split. This is, goes down, it splits families, communities. It's not something you can reduce to a big um, social category like gender or rural, urban, or, or age even. Um, so these psychological divides between those peoples who see uh, difference in diversity as disorder and those who actually appreciate diversity, that, that kind of psychological divide is becoming important for our politics. And the key issue, the lightning rod is immigration, uh, and that's a sort of key point, not just in Western Europe, but here in the US too, as we'll see. 
Um, if you look at, uh, this is data from uh, Britain, uh, those who say allow many more immigrants in at a number 10 on this scale, their chance of voting uh, for Brexit is about zero. Um, those who want a lot fewer immigrants, it's over 8 in 10. Um, so there's an 80-point gap between the most pro and the most anti-immigration. On the other hand, these income bans do matter. Rich people are less likely to uh, have voted to leave the European Union compared to people earning under 15,000 pounds a year, but that's only about a 10 or 15 point gap compared to an 80 point gap for immigration attitudes. Those immigration attitudes, by the way, are best predicted by those values questions of the kind like having a messy desk or believing in strict child rearing or the death penalty and not by income. U.S. case, we see something very similar. Um, amongst white Americans, if you said reduce immigration a lot, you had over an 8 in 10 chance of voting for Trump. Increase immigration a lot is sort of under 1 in 10. Looks very similar to the uh, Brexit data, except that income level matters even less in the American situation. So again, this is a story very much of uh, values and immigration. Uh, and that, I think, explains who votes for the populist right, is people who don't like that sort of change and difference, again, seeing that more as disorder and, as, and change as loss of the country that they know. Um, the question then is, well, why is this happening now? I mean, there always have been people with messy desks. So why is this <laughs> why, why since 20, uh, approximately since 2014, have we seen this uptick? Um, and it's, I would argue, certainly in the European case, but even in the American case, that numbers and the rate of change is the key factor. Um, here are some numbers from the European Union showing the increase in immigration into the EU from outside the EU starting in 2013 goes from about a half a million up to 750,000 peaks with the migrant crisis of around, with around 2 million entering and then declines. If you look at the Eurobarometer, which is a sort of a survey which is, uh, the, Euro the EU runs, you can see that um, when people are asked what's the main concern of the European Union um, amongst the citizens, immigration's profile rises along with the numbers up to uh, over 20%. And then at, at the peak, almost 60% of EU citizens saying immigration, the number one issue facing the European Union. What happens is that it's not that as you get a large surge in immigration, that people change their attitudes from being um, open to immigration to restrictive. But the restrictive part of the population, instead of rating immigration the number five issue after health care and the economy, uh, it rises up their priority list to number one or two. And that's really what sets the fertile soil uh, for populist voting. And so a number of studies have come out showing in Europe, in nine out of ten countries, the populist right party vote share uh, tracks that increased salience, that black line there in immigration. So the immigration numbers rising, leading to a rising salience of immigration, and the populist right parties are doing well on the back of that. Um, now, the U.S. situation is not exactly analogous to that because of the nature of immigration in the U.S. And I even have one of Ashley's cribs, something from one of Ashley's um, slides here, or, or sorry, from her book. Uh, but, but here we have the rise in the U.S. immigrant population, which is really fastest after this 1986 IRCA amnesty, and you see a big rise in the 90s. Tapers actually a little bit in the 2000s. Um, media coverage, as Ashley shows, actually increases in this period. What we see in terms of that same measure, what is the most important issue facing uh, the country, is that, that immigration emerges for the first time in the 1990s something that had never been recorded since the um, records began in the 1930s. So immigration is starting to be rated as number one by a small number of people, 
But that actually shows a lot of volatility and is especially important when we look at Republican voters. Amongst Republican voters, starting in mid-2014, there was um, uh, the beginning of the Central American uh, mothers and children immigration crisis at the border and also the defeat um, of, an, of a, a bill that would have regularized a large number of undocumented uh, people in the United States, which was defeated in part by populist pressure from congressional Republicans. That immigration issue broke 10% of the population saying it's the most important issue, and it stayed that way prior to Trump's uh, primary bid. And the fact immigration had a higher profile already prior to Trump meant that this was his handlers sort of like Kellyanne Conway and others realized that this was an issue that actually could be converted into electoral currency. And so I think part of the story, or a big part of the story of Trump, and actually if you look at the analysis of his win in the primaries, immigration, an absolutely critical issue. Uh, why, do, why do people choose Trump rather than Cruz or one of the other candidates? Immigration was, was the number one uh, reason why. And then, of course, since sort of late 2017, the right-wing media plus Trump have cued this issue and actually sent its salience up, which does show that actually there's a supply-side uh, effect where politicians and the media can actually increase the salience of an issue. Uh, part of this is also because um, conservatism in the United States was quite different from Europe. It emphasized, uh, for example, um, the religious right or low-tax or neoconservative democracy promotion, that kind of universalistic, outward-looking conservatism. Um, actually help, help to keep this sort of restrictionist conservatism, nationalist conservatism uh, suppressed, but it actually emerges through the grassroots and the Tea Party and, and breaks through. And actually what this kind of means is the U.S. is starting to look more like Europe. The patterns are starting to resemble more what we see in, in Europe than, for example, the recent American past. Um, okay, I think that um, also we have to understand the sort of partisan polarization that's playing out, not just in the U.S., but actually increasingly, not just in Britain, but in other parts of Europe. This cultural divide, that open-closed divide, is gaining a greater importance and reconfiguring parties and politics. So the Tory party and the Labour party in Britain now have exactly the same class composition. Uh, unthinkable in 1950, or even in 1990. So that's a huge shift. Why? Well, because well-educated, well-heeled liberals have gone from the Tories over to the Labour Party, and similarly, white working class, more culturally conservative voters have gone into the Conservative Party. I think you see something of that in, in the United States, where um, well-educated, uh, rich liberals are moving, uh, to some extent, into the Democrats, and, and white working class out of the Democrats into the Republicans. And that kind of pattern is, is now occurring across Europe as well, and reshaping politics. Um, but also the nature of progressivism, the nature of the left changed a lot in the 1960s, became more focused on race, gender, identity issues, and that has also contributed, I think, to the exodus of white working class voters out of the left uh, across the Western world. What you see is a few in the 60s, if we look at mentions of the term racist in English language books, there's a rise in the late 60s, actually after the civil rights era, not before it, and then another rise in the sort of late... 80s, early 90s, when the term politically correct emerges. And these are periods of activism on the left, identity activism on the, on the left, and I think they play uh, some role in explaining a kind of populist backlash. Not the main role, but they play some role in explaining this. Uh, we can see it even more sharply since 
well, even before Trump has come into office, if we look at the New York Times content analysis, use of the term sexist and racist in the New York Times has sort of jumped off the scale. Again, this was already happening before Trump, and some of the story here is Trump, and some of it is social media. So you see the right-wing populist sort of uh, re reacting to some extent to the rise of the identity left, but then also you see the sort of progressives reacting to the rise of right-wing populism. So each one is actually riffing off the other, increasing the polarization levels. Um, in addition, there's another important dynamic, particularly in Europe, but not only in Europe, which is that when um, it becomes very difficult to have a conversation about immigration levels because of taboos around racism, then that issue cannot be handled by the main parties. We saw that in Sweden and Germany as well. Uh, that it's a bit like I use the example of um, you know, a Soviet department store that can only sell one type of pants. Um, and who's going to supply the other colors? Well, it's going to be bootleggers or black, black marketeers off on the side. And in a way, um, the populist is a bit like a, black, a political black marketeer. If the mainstream parties were, aren't supplying, let's say, an immigration restrictionist politics, then uh, that, may, that opens up um, terrain for the populist to supply that and, and win a bunch of votes. Um, and you can see that very clearly in Sweden prior to 2014. The, there was a, uh, one of the interior minister, uh, the interior minister in, in a mainstream party wanted to raise the issue of immigration, was attacked in the media as racist, backed off, and then the next year the Sweden Democrats, the populist right party, come in on about 13% and eventually went up to 25 And then the mainstream parties then moved over and started talking about the issue and took support away, have been able to successfully take some support away from the populist right by expanding into this territory. Similarly, I think in the U.S., with Trump being the only one of 17 primary candidates really willing to go and make immigration central to his primary pitch. And that, too, was breaking a kind of taboo that had existed prior to that. Okay, so what we actually see are two things going on. We actually see a different response to diversity and change with uh, the people who are more open to diversity having a more positive response and the people who uh, prefer stability, continuity, and order having a, a more negative response. So that leads to a kind of polarization along these culture value lines. But then in addition to that, we have the progressive reaction to the populist right, um, which is values-based and, and moral. It's, a, it's an ethical issue. So is it even ethical to be campaigning about immigration? That divides people. And I'll show you just a little bit of data from the U.S., I've done similar work in the UK, and actually I've got data for about 18 European countries. But here's the phrase, and this maybe chimes with the poster um, that for this event. Uh, here's a question that I gave. This is 2017 on a sample of Americans. Um, a white American who identifies with her group and its history supports a proposal to reduce immigration. Her motivation is to maintain her group's share of America's population. Um, is this person one just acting in her racial self-interest, which is not racist, or two, being racist. We'll leave the don't knows out of this for now, since I excluded them from this analysis. Well, you see an enormous split here, which I think reflects the two processes that I just talked about. Um, white Clinton voters with a postgraduate degree, 91% say it's, this person's being racist. Um, Trump voters with less than high school, only 6%. Uh, if we take actually non-white Americans, they kind of fall in the middle. About 45% say this person's being racist, 55% say they are not being racist, but just kind of seeking their group self-interest. Even minority Clinton voters compared to white Clinton voters, there's almost a 15-point difference. So that's quite interesting. In the UK, 
amongst Brexit voters who don't have a degree, the number is zero who actually think this is racist. So, but on average in the US, about a third of the population would say racist, about two-thirds not. In Europe, it's about a quarter that would answer racist and three-quarters not. So that's kind of roughly the split. But they tend to divide the population very strongly um, along partisan lines. And so this kind of, and we can see this in the um, immigration attitude statistics in the United States from the American National Election Study. This is just white Americans. Almost, you know, very little difference between Republicans and Democrats right the way from 92 up to even 2012 where, you know, Romney, um, you know, of course Romney voters were a little bit more restrictionist, but it's still not that big until we get to, of course, Trump-Clinton, and then it's boom, it goes out to 50 points uh, between white Americans who vote Republican, 70% uh, want less immigration, and white Americans voting Democrat, it's only 20%. That's not just people who are restrictionists moving into the Republican Party it's all, and also responding to party cues, but it is also this progressive reaction to the populace which drives um, people to actually say we want more immigration, which is now 60% of white liberals say that. Um, so again, we've got this process of polarization. In the UK, the difference between Brexit voters and Remain voters on the immigration question is sort of 40 to 50 points as well. So it's similar kind of dynamic that's emerging across uh, different West European societies. Another stat I could just throw at you is um, in Germany, in the Bavarian elections, the a alternative for Germany uh, voters, uh, are fully 100% of alternative for Germany voters said Germany is gradually losing its culture and only 20% of green voters. So these are big gaps and they are largely explained not by economics but by culture. Okay, last slide, um, <laughs> I promise. Uh, and this is just looking ahead uh, about white identity, and, and I've kind of uh, got partly a stake in this. I'm, I'm a quarter Chinese, a quarter Costa Rican, so I'm kind of you know, interested in it. But, um, but it is the case that with a certain amount of intermarriage, that's uh, significant intermarriage that's taking place in all Western societies, uh, we are going to see, I would argue, the emergence of mixed race uh, majorities, or at least the proportion of the population that will have multiple racial background will be a majority. Uh, and this, but this isn't going to happen for a while. In Britain, I worked with a demographer to, to do this projection based on census data and um, intermarriage data. The mixed population, that's the key one to keep your eye on in gray. Only about 2% of um, England's population is of mixed race currently, compared to about 6% in the US. Uh, by 2050, it's still only 7%, so not much change. But then we see this kind of logarithmic curve, and, and I can answer in the Q&A why that's the case. But by uh, the end of the century, it's almost 30%, and then 50 years later, it's 75%. So next century will be the century of this large-scale rise in the mixed-race population. And the big question I would argue is, you know, how are they going to identify themselves in terms of ethnicity? Not in terms of race so much, but in terms of ethnicity. And my argument is actually that people with those mixes are going to identify more with the European heritage than with their various exotic heritages. And the reason being because um, that is, has a longer sort of pedigree in Britain and is sort of closer to the cultural core and cultural capital uh, in the history of the population. But, of course, there is going to be difference. I mean, we can see this in countries like Turkey that have had this, already been through this process and have had a lot of mixture 
Um, yes, most people identify with the Central Asian heritage, uh, but still you've got a, a small minority who identify more with the Byzantine Christian heritage. And so you have kind of, you're always going to have some difference in identity, but still I think that is where it's going to go in terms of a, what Michael Lynn calls a Beijing or a transracializing of the white or the ethnic majority population in Europe. In the U.S., it may move into a sort of a, a mestizo-type direction with, because you've got an old um, white uh, Protestant population and the African-American population are both ex very well established and would probably be the basis for a, a new emerging um, majority ethnic group. Okay, I will leave it there and please text your questions if you have any to this number. Good evening, everyone. I just want to say that I am delighted to be here and to thank the Riley Institute and Ollie for putting together this wonderful program. And I'm also really excited to be able to have a conversation with Eric and Kalila. I think this is a wonderful opportunity. So what I'm going to talk about tonight is mainly the underlying psychology of white identity and white identity politics. And I'm going to dig into the difference and the distinction between racism and racial prejudice and white identity and what that means for contemporary politics particularly in the United States, but also we can think about a lot of this, um, as Eric has mentioned, with respect to what's going on across the, the world and um, across the Western world. And I want to begin by laying a landscape that I think is now well-trotted. Um, it's very familiar to you all. So we know that whites are no longer going to be a majority of the United States somewhere by the middle of the century. And I know this because uh, this is something that most Americans are well aware of at this point. And they're well aware of the in part because there was a lot of news coverage of these demographic projections after the 2010 census. And so we're starting to think about sort of a time frame here. We've got 2010, we've got uh, information about demographic change, we're coming on the wake of a really symbolic historic moment in the United States, the election of the nation's first African-American president. And this is really symbolic, right, because this isn't just the election of the nation's first African-American president, but it's also the election of the first non-white president in the United States, right? So deeply symbolic. In 2016, white Americans elected a rather unconventional presidential candidate. So, um, so you know, and, and this is true, right? Trump has parted ways with a lot of uh, candidates in recent years. He's um, openly disparaged racial and ethnic minorities. Uh, he's failed at times to distance himself from endorsements from white nationalists and white supremacists. Um, he has taken up some rather unconventional policy positions as a Republican candidate, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. So some other things are going on, right? We've seen the rise of white nationalism, something we haven't seen in some time, um, but we've got white nationalist organizations marching in the streets. Uh, Organizations that track the rise of white nationalist organizations in the United States have noted an uptick, not just since Obama was elected, but since Trump was elected. Some other curious things are happening. So white Americans are starting to report that discrimination against their group as as big of a problem in the United States, if not bigger, than discrimination against racial and ethnic minorities. And kind of tied up in this in the midst of this, some white Americans are asking, well, why don't white people have a white history month? Right? They're asking, we you know, people of color are black, there's a black history month, why can't white people celebrate white history month? <laughs> 
And in the midst of this, you've got a lot of conservative political pundits making some interesting remarks. So Rush Limbaugh in 2009 described white people as the new oppressed minority. He said they're moving to the back of the bus. Bill O'Reilly, after the election of Obama, the re-election of Obama, said the white establishment is now the minority. It's not traditional America anymore. Uh, Pat Buchanan, white America is an endangered species. Pat Buchanan has been saying this for a long time, right? If you were around following politics in the 1990s, that's going to be familiar to you, right? But these other comments, right, this is kind of a new flavor, a new way of talking about race and talking about the sort of status of white Americans in the United States. And I want to kind of give you a sort of sense of what, what are, what are social scientists doing this with? What are academics thinking about this? Well, it might not be surprising to you um, if we were having this conversation even two years ago that for a long time, a lot of academics, a lot of just sort of you know, people in the world thought, well, white people don't think about being white, right? Like you don't think, maybe you've had the same thought yourself, right? That if you're a white person, your race hasn't really occurred to you very much. You don't think about being white very often. And maybe if you do, you don't think about it in a way that might have sort of led you to vote for a particular candidate or to care about a particular policy. And that's largely what academics have said for a long time, that white consciousness is not important to people. It's not politically important. And the, the rationale is that as the dominant group in American society, um, as the group that sort of sets the norm, the sort of prototypical group in American society, whites have the privilege of being able to take their race for granted. They, because they don't experience sort of systematic oppression, um, or discrimination, they don't, they're not constantly reminded of their race, right? And so part of what we're talking about tonight is, well, what happens when sort of times have changed? And I want to make an important point here in the service of distinguishing between what I mean by white identity and white identity politics and racial prejudice. I'm going to use the term racial prejudice, and I'm going to use it in a way that's distinct from the term racism, and that's important here. The language we use is, in fact, really important. So for a long time, really coming out of the 1940s, but then especially out of the 1950s, we spent a lot of time studying racial prejudice. And what I mean by that is the antipathy, the negative attitudes, the stereotypes, the negative stereotypes that many whites held toward people of color in the United States, particularly the attitudes that whites held toward blacks in the United States. We think of these as outgroup attitudes, the attitudes that whites had toward people who were not part of their racial group. And that's the sort of paradigm that's dominated the way we thought about race and racism and the way we thought race has mattered for how we organize our society and how we organize our political world and to the extent that which race has mattered for who we vote for. We've thought a lot about the role of racial prejudice. Okay, so we've got that. But I want to take you for a moment into the world of social psychology. So don't think about race for a minute. Just think about the fact that we know as human beings that we have an innate tendency to sort the world into groups. We like to put people into categories and we like to put ourselves into categories. And when we do this, there's a whole host of psychological phenomenon that accompany that. We just behave in particular ways as a result of organizing the world into groups. The thing is, is all the people who are studying racial prejudice for a long time, they weren't thinking about the world in this way. They argued that the way that you got your attitudes about people who weren't like you is that you were taught them, right? You grew up, you went to school, maybe you read some stuff in the media, you watched some movies, your parents taught you the attitudes that you ought to have about people who weren't like you. But now that the world is becoming more diverse, we're starting to kind of go back to some of our old theories that we've thought about, that we've used to think about kind of groups and groupness and intergroup conflict. 
And we're starting to think, well, it's not just that people have attitudes toward outgroups. They also have attitudes towards their in-group. And one of the things that people do when they sort themselves into a group is they like to do things that benefit their group. Right? They like to give their group more resources. They like to protect their group. And sometimes they do this without even thinking about people who aren't part of their group. Sometimes they do it without worrying about what's happening with outgroup members. Or sometimes they do it without, not because they dislike people who aren't like them, but because they want to protect their group. Okay, so you can probably see where I'm going with this. Um, and I'll, I'll connect the dots and we'll get there. Um, but the other thing to think about is sort of part of the story that I'm telling here is that in the United States, we organize people and we categorize them all the time along lines of race. But there's another really important feature of the way that we organize racial groups in the United States, and that's that there's a hierarchy where white people are at the top and people of color are somewhere down along the line. So what do I mean by hierarchy? What I mean is that white Americans unequivocally have a disproportionate share of social, economic, and political resources. Now I'm gonna talk very briefly just to give you a flavor of this, and it's really hard to capture this with a single slide in a very short period of time. I, talk, I teach an entire class where we talk about these kinds of things, and I can barely scratch the surface, right? But to give you a sense of what I mean by white people being at the top, Right, so today, the median white American family has 12 times the wealth of blacks in the United States. Um, the average Hispanic family has about one-sixth as much wealth as the average white family. We incarcerate blacks in the U.S. at five times the rate of whites, and this is a number that can't be accounted by differences in criminality. Racial minorities make up 37.4% of the general U.S. population, but they're 62% of the people killed um, unarmed people killed by police in the United States. Black and brown people are less likely to be offered jobs when they're as equally qualified as whites for positions, um, and when they are hired, they're still paid less than their white counterparts. So we're also talking about a world in which there is a lot of systematic and structural racial inequality. Right, and where does that come from? Okay, so we've got some things on the table. We've got the idea that we have in-groups and we have out-groups and we have attitudes towards our in-groups and we have attitudes towards our out-groups. We have the idea that the U.S. is organized along lines of race with white people at the top. And then the world starts to look really different beginning in the 1990s and early 2000s. So we have this big demographic shift, as Eric has mentioned. The demographics of the United States have shifted really dramatically in a fairly short period of time. And what I want to argue is that as a result of this shift, many white Americans who might not have previously thought a whole lot about being white, well, suddenly they're starting to think about being white. They're starting to possess an attachment to their racial group. They're starting to see themselves as a group, um, and they believe that they have shared political interests as members uh, of a white racial group. And they're worried about their numerical decline. They're worried about sort of the loss of their status at the top of that racial hierarchy and the loss of the privileges and advantages that come by way of being white in the United States. And so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to throw too much data at you, but know that the work that I've done, and if you're interested in reading the book, um, looks at sources of evidence across uh, public opinion surveys over a decade using nationally representative data. And so I, I measure and I ask people a variety of questions to sort of get at, like, how, how do we know that white people have an identity? How do we know that they think about their racial group? And one way is I simply asked them, how important is being white? to your identity. And what I find is that 30 to 40% of white Americans say that being white is very, if not extremely, important to them. And whites who answer this question in this way behave in ways that are very different than people who reject this racial identity. And 
you know, times have changed, but there are certainly moments in American political history where we might have thought about that people have sort of had this identity, that this racial identity has been really important to them. So if you go back to the 1920s, conversations were looking very similar in the U.S. in the 1920s as they are today. So we, again, this period of time had a big shift in demographics, a massive influx of immigrants from parts of the world that at the time uh, people were coming from were not considered white, right? So in the early 1900s, Irish, the Italians, people from Eastern Europe, they weren't considered white people. Um, they were considered members of a different race for the most part. And if you go back to the congressional record at the time, a lot of politicians were worried about the ethnic composition of the United States. They were saying things like, well, we need to protect America as a white nation. We need to preserve the sort of, they, they use the term like Nordic stock of the United States, right? Very similar language to what we see today. If you look, this is um, a quote from Senator Ellison Durant from South Carolina. Thank God we have in America the largest percentage of the pure, unadulterated Anglo-Saxon stock is for the preservation of that splendid stock that I would make this a country to assimilate and perfect that splendid type. This has made America the foremost nation. The New York Times, in response to the passage of the 1924 Immigration Act, which put restrictive quotas on immigrants coming from those parts of the world that were considered non-white at the time, says, America of the melting pot comes to the end. The effects of the new immigration legislation, legislation described by the Senate sponsor of the bill, the chief aim is to preserve the racial type as it exists here today. So we've had these conversations before. And I would argue we were having similar conversations during the civil rights movement, right? So we often think about civil rights movement as being a reaction of whites who had a high degree of racial prejudice, who weren't happy about integration. Um, but the other way of thinking about it, right, is that there are many whites who might not have disliked people of color, but maybe they were worried that, you know, like things were changing. Their, like their voting power was changing, their economic power was changing. And so the sort of distinction here is between the antipathy that some people have and um, the sort of worry or concern about privilege and loss of privilege independent of those attitudes. Okay, so what does that mean for us today? So what I show... Uh, and again, I'm not going to like throw a bunch of data with you uh, at you, but what I show is that whites who identify with their racial group, who have this sense of racial solidarity, um, they have a desire to protect and benefit whites. They support policies that disproportionately benefit whites as a group. Um, they're highly opposed to immigration. They also are more supportive of Social Security and Medicare. Now, this is interesting, right? Yeah, okay. I, I see, I, I, I get the demographics of my group here, yeah. Okay. Okay, so why, why Social Security? Why Medicare? All right, so this is interesting. I'm not the first person to make this argument. Um, Nick Winter at the University of Michigan uh, has a really fantastic book where he's talked about the framing over time of Social Security and Medicare. But when people think of Social Security and Medicare, um, they think about the stereotypes that are associated with those policies in opposition to stereotypes that we have about those other social welfare programs, right? Turns out Social Security is a social welfare program. Um, but when people think about welfare, right? They think about um, negative and erroneous stereotypes associated primarily with African Americans in the United States that have to do with laziness, with a failure to subscribe to individualism or the American work ethic. Social Security stands in contrast that for that, right? It's the reward you get for working hard, for playing along with the system, for doing the things that you're supposed to do. And so what that means is that Social Security is tied up in whiteness. And lo and behold, white Americans who identify with their racial group, they like their Social Security. They like their Medicare. They also really weren't big fans of Barack Obama, and they're really big fans 
of Donald Trump. And I think it's worth kind of taking a moment to think about this, right? Donald Trump parts ways with the traditional Republican candidates by focusing on immigration, by focusing on protecting and preserving Social Security and Medicare, not a traditional Republican Party platform um, position. Right? And then, you know, there's also sort of the whole, like, legacy of kind of um, effort to sort of undo the legacy of Barack Obama. So, you know, some people talk about Trump as being, like, the first white president. And, and you know, there's a lot of sort of – we think about all the sort of dog whistle politics involved and what it means to, like, make America great again and, you know, et cetera. Okay, so I told you that uh, white identity is associated with all of these things. So why do we care? Why does it matter? Like, if I'm making this distinction between white identity and white racial prejudice, like – is that really a distinction without a difference? And I think that it is for a couple of important reasons. So one is the people who identify as white are not the same people who hold high levels of racial prejudice toward people of color. I'm talking about two very separate groups here. Now, to be clear, there are some people who are really high on white identity and who are really high on racism. Those are the white supremacists. You know who they are, right? But there are a lot of white Americans who don't hold very negative views toward people of color, and yet, at the same time, they have a strong sense of attachment to their racial group. So when Trump goes out and appeals to people um, based on their negative attitudes towards people of color, and he goes out and appeals to um, white Americans who, you know, maybe want the country to look a little bit more like it did 10, 20, 50 years ago. He's appealing to two different sets of voters. So what that means is there are these two forces at play in American politics. There's white racism, um, defined as racial prejudice, and then there's white identity. And the problem is that if white Americans are motivated to protect the status of their group, the status at the top, right, that by definition comes at the expense of greater levels of racial equality, right? Because if it's about whites wanting to protect or preserve some degree of privilege, um, what that means is that it's, it's in an effort to try to maintain the system of inequality or the system of racial um, inequality. And so the way I like to put it is that white identity is not the same as racial prejudice, but it nevertheless helps to reinforce the system of racial inequality in the United States. Um, and I think this is a really important way to, th it's important to think about the normative implications of this. Do we want to be in a society where we have higher levels of racial egalitarianism? Do we want to be in a society where politicians are sort of exploiting and trying to um, use our racial attitudes and differences across racial groups to their advantage? Um, we know that they can do this. We know that they're good at it, right? So, um, you know, Donald Trump constantly sort of makes these remarks, like, why do we have immigrants coming from these particular countries? Why don't we have more immigrants coming from Norway, right? Why don't we have more white immigrants coming? Um, you know, and, and there's Eric said that Trump was sort of really unique at capitalizing on this particular issue of immigration. This is Trump's website in August of 2015. You can look at this for yourself. You can use the Internet Wayback Machine. You can go to Trump's website as it existed when his presidential campaign began. The only issue on Donald Trump's website at the time was immigration reform. And so I want you to think about every time it's sort of politically expedient for Trump to talk about the issue of immigration, he does so. So case in point, midterm elections come around. Suddenly we have an immigration crisis. There is a caravan of immigrants coming to storm the border. We actually send troops to the border to protect us from this caravan. Elections happen. Elections are over. Suddenly this caravan completely disappears. 
And so th this matters, right? Because it's not, uh, it's not just, it's not about the reality of the world around us, right? We can have really valuable conversations about the role of immigration in American society, um, whether immigrants are sort of a net economic benefit or an, a net economic loss, but that's not the conversation that we're having, right? The conversation we're having is there, are there people who don't look like us, are there people who aren't white kind of coming into the United States, changing the demographics of that country, um, and, you know, why is it that we care so much about this? Why is it that we're so worried about this? Um, I mentioned before, uh, Trump parts ways with other Republican candidates by uh, focusing on these policies in particular. It'll be interesting to see what happens as he sort of um, backtracked on this. And, and I want to point out that part of what we're observing here is an erosion of norms. And we're observing an erosion of norms in two respects. So one is that, you know, it's quite apparent to many people that Trump uses more explicitly racialized language than many other politicians, for certainly many other politicians who've entered the national scene. Um, but there are politicians who also say things like this, right? So uh, what, um, what have non-whites done for civilization? And this starts to kind of tread a lot in this sort of territory of white identity. It's not about disparaging racial outgroups, but it's sort of about, yeah, white people are like preserving this, uh, you know, white people did all the good things um, and, you know, Trump seems a little bit impervious to a lot of the sanctioning, but not all politicians are. So Steve King said these things. Um, you know, Steve King then gets removed from his committee assignment. And I think that part of the danger with white identity politics, when you think about it as distinct from racial prejudice, is that we're used to, or we, we think we know sort of racial prejudice when we see it. But it's different when people are talking about racial talking about race in a way that is about in-group favoritism, about sort of preserving the status of the group. It seems a lot more palatable when people say, look, I'm just want to, I'm looking out for my group. I just want to protect my group. People of color, they have organizations that are based on, they're a racial group, why can't white people have organizations based on being white, right? That sounds um, to a lot of people pretty, like, reasonable. And, and so I think that part of the danger of white identity politics um, in a world, again, in which we care about racial egalitarianism is that it's um, something that we often miss or we overlook or we sort of fail to see as uh, racist in some way. And so I'll leave it with it. Our panel's getting seated. I remind you, text your questions. Um, we'll have a couple of minutes of a few minutes of conversation with the panel, uh, and then we will turn it over to our students who will be asking us the questions that you've sent them. Hi. All right. Um, since you have not yet heard from Kalila, I want to give her a chance uh, to respond to what she's heard. Um, she explores issues related to race, ethnicity, and gender, uh, and you've got the book coming out on identity politics in the U.S. So how does what you've heard fit with the research that you've done? So I first want to join the chorus of gratitude to thank Ali and the Institute for having us. But what I really want to do is thank all of you who are in this room. The fact that you are willing to engage these topics, the fact that you are willing to be uncomfortable, is what we need more of in our country in this moment. 
I believe that being uncomfortable is what challenges us to push toward a common goal. And when we retreat into our silos, whether it be our houses of worship, our neighborhoods, or our country clubs, or even our social media accounts, it takes us away from doing that. So when I listened to my two esteemed colleagues talk, I scrapped all the notes that I had written before. <laughs> I do this often. And I began thinking about James Baldwin. Right? James Baldwin said, I love America more than any other country in this world. And for precisely that reason, I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. We collectively have to reject the notion that to be critical of this country that we love makes us unpatriotic. I think of it as a married couple who's having some problems and some issues, right? Like you've, fed, you've gotten fed up with leaving the socks right beside the hamper. Maybe I'm telling them I'm sorry. But the love is there, the respect is there, but you need some help to figure out how to get things right again. So you go to counseling because you want to work on it. And so in this moment, this is the 400th anniversary of enslaved Africans arriving on the shores of my home state of Virginia. What does it mean that people are told when they mention that, why do you keep talking about race? That's the past. That's the history. I didn't own slaves. Why should I be held accountable for that? Let's just stop talking about it and leave that to the past. And on the other hand, those are often the very same people who get upset when people debate whether to have the Confederate flag remain, whether to rename the name of a street. So Virginia is going through that literally today with Jefferson Davis Highway, whether to remove a statue. So when I think about where we are today, where we are not just in the US but across the world, that's the kind of context that I think about. My identity growing up as a little brown girl with a big Arabic name in a place called Lynchburg, Virginia. Right? <laughs> oh, that place. So yes, I live in the north, but I'm a Virginia girl. That shaped so much of what I wanted to write about in this book, to understand the legacies of slavery, yes, is about race, but fundamentally it's about power. And it's about the power of American institutions to decide the worth and value of every person on this shore. So whether that is the worth and value of people arriving from Ireland and people being concerned about allowing Irish children to go to US public schools. So how do we uphold the Constitution and still limit who can attend those schools? We adopt and require the King James Version of the Bible in public schools, because then we know Catholic parents aren't going to send their children to those schools. So what do we have to do? We have to develop Catholic schools, not because we believe that being Catholic makes you better than, or that being Irish makes you better than, but it becomes a method of survival. And for a lot of people in our country, that's the mode. Last thing I want to say, when I think about my own identity and the groups to which I belong that matter in my own politics and matter to the kinds of things that our colleagues talked about, the identity that matters the most to me is being a mother. I'm a mother to an 11-year-old girl who just started sixth grade last week, and I'm still crying on the inside. <laughs> 2015, I'm a nerd at heart, in case you couldn't tell. 
2015, we take our daughter to Selma, Alabama, because my colleagues and I had written a report about the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And we went back for that 50th anniversary to present the report, and we take her with us. And to have that little girl stand on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, to know who Edmund Pettus was in 1965, and to then be there in 2015 and see Barack Obama and George W. Bush embrace each other. I wanted that little girl to understand that on that bridge, soaked in the blood and the tears of martyrs, her purpose in this country had been set. We leave Selma a couple months later. We go to pick her up from our family. And we get the call that there are people marching with tiki torches on the grounds of my alma mater, the University of Virginia. Now, I can't go pick up my daughter without going through Charlottesville. So what does it mean that people go to that space and say, we will not be replaced, blood and soil? It's not just about attacking African Americans. It's then an appeal to anti-Semitism. It's a gendered appeal. It's a religious appeal. And that campus is sacred ground because my dorm sat in the middle of a burial ground for enslaved laborers who built Thomas Jefferson's amazing university. So it's not just about Trump. It's not just about people feeling like they are being replaced or wondering what that means for their economic well-being or feeling like, why can't I have a white history month or why can't I have a straight pride march? I think that was in Boston last week, right? Because we know on every marker, whether we're talking about public education here in South Carolina or we're talking about innocent people losing their lives in a Walmart in Texas, or in a church in Charleston, the people who get held accountable for that progressive left that is so offensive to many don't have the power. And so they pay the price of a very select few, a very elite few, who then get put forth. So that's my very long response to saying, this is so much deeper than saying your group is not like mine and that makes me feel like I'm being erased. Because in this American project, since the founding of this great nation, it's always been about deciding who matters and what follow that up, it seems to me that a lot of the discussion that we heard thus far this evening is presenting a lot of data and, and information trying to help us understand this concept of white identity. Um, and you've mentioned there's some nuances, you know, racism versus identity. How do we distinguish between fear of change, the demographic changes Eric was talking about, and fear of the other, which I think, Ashley, you were pointing out, and I think Kalila's also sort of tapping into that. If we're trying to understand each other, how do we, how do we distinguish between those two things, fear of change versus fear of other? Who wants it? Okay. Well, all right, all right. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I think there is an important difference. I think Ashley gets to it a bit with this difference between identity to own group and dislike or antipathy to out group. I think that's an important distinction, and we can talk about um, the implications of that. I actually think that if we're going to say that majority groups um, are not sort of allowed to have that attachment, I think we're heading for real trouble. And I just, I think we need to say all the caveats, it's got to be moderate, there can't be discrimination, etc. But with the way the polarization is going, I don't think it's enough to sort of try and glue together this dislike of outgroups and attachment to in-groups. So one of the things that you see in the data on the U.S., for example, is that, uh, or that I've seen in sort of other samples that I've taken, is attachment to ancestry, um, which I, so I take a sort of slightly different view. I think there are absolutely people who are racist. There are people who are trying to keep the power structure as it is. But I think a lot of this, I take it from a more European lens, which is that there's no real threat to majorities in Europe. Um, but what there is is this loss of sort of this idea of, I don't recognize my country anymore, etc. So, so again, and of course, the country is going to change, right? So we have to have change. Uh, but I don't think, the, I don't like the binary where you're either multicultural or you want to go back to whites only. I think that's not really the debate. The debate is how multicultural, how fast. So that then gets us into shades of gray where we can make a compromise. If it's about you must embrace high-speed immigration and diversity or else you're a bad person, then I think you're going to get a lot of people's backs up against the wall and you're going to have a polarized debate. So I would just urge us to be able to have, to, to, to treat people who want things to be slower um, as people, you know, we're going to have to compromise with them. I think that debate has got to become more like the debate over tax rates where we reach an accommodation. I'm not saying there is an accommodation. Um, but, but more like the economic debate where we can kind of make a deal and it's less polarized and moralized. I think, of course, there are people who are people with tiki torches or Donald Trump talking about Mexicans as rapists. That's racist and terrible. Um, we should absolutely be uncategorically denouncing that. However, um, when people say we want slower late rates of immigration, I think that's a legitimate political issue to debate. So that's probably, I don't know, don't know if I answered your question. Um, okay. So one way that we can distinguish between fear of change and, the fear, and fear of the other is that we ask people in experiments that we conduct whether they would be okay with a plethora of immigrants coming from Germany. And then we ask them whether they'd be okay with the plethora of immigrants coming from Latin America. And lo and behold, a lot of white Americans are pretty indifferent to a large influx of immigrants from anywhere in Western Europe that considers people to be primarily white. Um, so it's, there's, it's not just about change, right? It's change driven by which demographic group? What's the color of the skin of the people coming into the country who are initiating a lot of this change? And I think the thing to worry about when we're talking about sort of sort of allowing some degree of concern or some you know, sort of some outlet for people to express concern about um, immigration is that I, I don't think that sort of animosity toward other groups or fear toward other groups is sort of a balloon that we can just simply let a little air out of and then people are going to feel more comfortable, right? I think what's obvious is that a lot of people's racial attitudes, whether that's the concern for their in-group or the dislike they have for their out-group, are like, pretty sticky. People don't really move. Um, they don't change those attitudes. And so a lot of societal change has to sort of come with pressure um, to not violate particular norms, right? To not sort of say things that are like offensive and, and racist and, and you know, har harmful. Um, and I, I think that, that part of the conversation that we have to have is 
where do we draw the line? Um, what's too far? What, like, at what point do, does someone sort of express something that seems innocuous? And at what point are they expressing something that seems sort of deeply socially problematic? Ashley, you mentioned the suggestion that some have had about a White History Month, or we've heard others, you know, should whites be able to organize around race in some way? How would that help or hurt in today's political environment? The problem with whites wanting to organize or have a White History Month, and in some ways I feel this is sort of a little bit of a platitude, right, at this point. So every month is White History Month, right? But there, you know, but, but there's some truth to that, right? The reason that we, that a marginalized or oppressed groups in American society have these months or days or whatever celebrating their culture and their heritage is because that they've been so systematically erased from the conversations and the culture and the way we talk about things. So give you a case in point, there are textbooks in the state of Texas that describe slavery as voluntary immigration. <laughs> I'm not kidding, right? And so that's why we have a Black History Month and why we don't have a White History Month. And I think, again, I, I keep harping on and I keep talking about the norms that we have, right, and what that means. And a White History Month starts to get really close um, to something that looks like a white supremacist group. And, and to give you some background information for that, when we ask people, when we give people sort of surveys and we say, like, how do you feel about a White History Month? Um, the people who are most supportive of that are the people who tend to be both really high on racial prejudice and high on white identity. And then sort of more anecdotally, the people who go out and start white history, or start, start white-only organizations, right? You've probably heard about a lot of these on um, college campuses. Most of these white student unions are started by bona fide members of the alt-right, not just by sort of everyday, you know, um, white, white Americans who just think it would be fun to write, you know, like have a bunch of their white friends get together and like drink some beers or something. Language is an important element uh, in generating anger, creating division, creating distrust in our institutions. Um, we've certainly seen politicians use language in ways to divide us on these issues. Um, I hear Eric saying we also need to understand where people are coming from. How do we balance understanding fears and distrust of whites with the need to build unity and inclusiveness for our democracy? So how do we balance the concerns of, of minority folks who may be sitting here going, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what about us? Uh, and, and whites who, who genuinely are afraid of change or even afraid of other groups. How do we deal with that, particularly in the language that we use? Um, we have to be clear about what we are asking and of whom. So we can have different opinions. That happens a lot in my house during college football season. <laughs> That's okay. And we can engage and we can be fierce in our engagement and our difference. But if what you believe denies my most basic humanity, I don't have an obligation to engage you in that. Because what purpose does that serve? If you have already decided that I am not worthy of being here, or that if I express a view that is different from your own, then I need to go back to some mythical place from which you imagine I have come, 
I'm not sure how our engagement is going to change that or make me feel any better. And I think what I often hear from people is a desire for the most basic right to just be. If you don't like me in your neighborhood, the beauty of growing up in Virginia is that people made it very clear where they stood. Now I live in Connecticut where there's this New England niceness that often makes it difficult. Let me know where you stand because then I can govern myself accordingly and we can interact in that way. But often I think we are asking people who have been shut out of so many basic features of American life to do the heavy lifting of making people feel good about themselves with no regard for their worth. And that's, I think, again, takes us away from a meaningful engagement that doesn't just make one side feel better. And that is regardless of party, regardless of ideology, because these debates are now happening within political parties. And if you don't believe it, ask any of the 5,000, 2,600 people running for the Democratic nomination right now. <laughs> <laughs> Want to comment on that question? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm just. I agree with. I, I agree with you part of the way, but I think we have to set. You know, there's a danger in both directions. In other words, there's a danger in not being sensitive to the needs of minorities, and we've still got a way to go. Absolutely on that. Um, but I also think we have to be mindful of the danger of going the other way and of expanding the meaning, for example, of racism to include things which probably most people don't think are racist as well. Um, so some of these statements around, um, you know, you are so articulate or, or America is a melting pot or some of these things which some people have called microaggressions or racism, most uh, minorities, most Hispanics and blacks do not see those as that. Uh, I, that is an example of where I think the boundaries of this concept are being expanded too far. And I think they, I don't think people have paid enough attention to some of the damage that that other process can also do. So yes, we absolutely need to, you know, reforming criminal justice, for example, or the healthcare system, or, or you know, I'm, a, I'm a, f a fan of universal healthcare and all these things which you don't tend to have in the US, but still, I, I, I would say um, the some of the political correctness we see on US campuses and the extent to which this concept of racism is weaponized and expanded beyond what most people would recognize is, I think, quite counterproductive. We've seen on one of Ashley's slides that, you know, sort of almost 60% of white Americans saying they're discriminated against, and, and they're not discriminated against, of course, in the economy, but if you probe that, a lot of this is around cultural portrayals and a perceived inequality about how whites and, and minorities are perceived in the culture, and I, on media, for example. Um, is that fair? I think to some extent, again, it gets to this issue of can one express a white identity and, and not be seen as, as a racist, you know? And I, I appreciate the dangers of this, of course. I mean, my, you know, I don't want to have to bring out these cards, but, you know, my, I wouldn't be here if my grandfather didn't escape um, um, Czechoslovakia in 1938. I get, you know, racism is a, is a terrible thing, but at the same time, we don't want to drive people. Uh, if we can't have these conversations in the mainstream, they are going to take place but they're going to take place either in the populist right or even worse, on the far right. We can't actually expand this meaning of the term racism to such an extent. I think that important conversations get pushed aside. So that's the other, I think we need to balance. We've got to do both tackle racism, but we can't expand that too far.
perception that people on the left just want open borders and everyone should just be able to enter the United States and everyone can come in and it doesn't matter. Like, it's fine. We should all just sort of like sit around and sing Kumbaya and it, it'll be great, right? And that's just not true, right? Like, most people agree that we should have immigration policies. We need immigration reform. That we need to be mindful of how people are coming into the country and who's coming into the country and how we take care of the people coming into the country and what that means for us. But the question and sort of what we're trying to do and part of why we need to have these conversations is we want to understand what is it really that motivates people's attitudes about immigration. And if it's one, just simply that, well, I think that I don't like immigrants because they're taking their job, uh, taking our jobs. Well, first of all, if you're a white person in the room, that you're not, like, your job is not in competition with most immigrant laborers in the United States. They're not taking your job. Um, if they're taking anyone's job, they're taking the jobs of other racial and ethnic minorities in the United States. And somehow, African Americans are far more supportive of immigration than white Americans. And so that's, right, so that's very curious. But the, the problem becomes when immigration uh, we, we aren't talking about the realities of immigration and the problems that it presents with respect to the economy in the United States, but instead we're talking about, we're using that as a cover for what we really mean, which is I just don't want black and brown people in the United States, right? Because when we start to dig into what are the effects of immigration on the United, in the United States, well, one thing is they're an economic boom. Do immigrants cause uh, more crime in the United States? No. In fact, in places where you have a higher immigrant population, crime rates are lower than comparable places where you don't have a high immigrant population. So what I mean by all of this is that immigration often becomes a strategy for politicians to play purely on Americans' racial animosities, on their dislike for people who don't look like them or on their concern or on this concern that they're going to lose some sort of cultural power or privilege or status, right? And so part of why we have to sort of talk through the realities of what this is and have like frank conversations about it is, you know, like we have to be real about what we mean and what is behind these attitudes and these motivations. And usually it's, it's not um, just these sort of like real legitimate economic concerns. I want to find our students who have our questions and see what questions our audience has at this point. Diana and Price, where are y'all? Ah, I, there's there's a blinding light in my... Yes. So I think that's right. for Price, yes. So this first question is for Dr. Kaufman. Uh, your biography in tonight's program mentions that you argue that we should treat white identity as we would any other ethnicity. What would you say to a white person who is psychologically conservative, as you described, but disagrees with your claim about white identity and sees the privilege inherent in white identity as a moral problem? Well, wow, a good question. First of all, whoever asked it. Um, yeah, I think, so I, I guess the issue is where is the moral problem coming in? I mean, Ashley mentioned that this might be used to maintain a power structure, and, and in that case, absolutely. I would always say I do want to see the evidence that connects, say, white identification with wanting to maintain a power structure, and Ashley does provide some evidence in her book, but I think a lot of the, I mean, a lot of whites who are atta I, I, attached to their identity would certainly also be attached to treating people fairly, not discriminating on the basis of race. So I, I certainly think, obviously, there are those who are not going to do that. But 
I think you can have a moderate identity, and this is where some people who say get rid of all identities in politics, you know, I, d I don't agree with that. I think you can have what Jonathan Haidt calls a kind of common humanity form an identity where you don't just try and go for absolutely the maximum, you actually compromise. Um, and I think these identities are more about attachment to ancestry and tradition and culture, and, and that's the sort of what's driving it. I'm less convinced it's just about wanting to keep power, whether that's economic power or even cultural power. I think it's not easily reducible just to power. I mean, and if, but, but of course, this is a research question. I'm a social scientist. If you want to compare a kind of attachment thesis with a power thesis and show me the evidence that this is really actually about power, then okay, then we'll, I can agree with, with getting rid of this concept. But I'm not sure, especially as the white share declines in countries across the West, that we can continue to say this identity is out of bounds and the others are not. I think that's what the far right alt-right uses as its hook and it's a real force multiplier for these alt-right, the really nasty groups. They say, look, you don't get equality with other groups, they get special privileges. That's an awfully appealing hook and then once you get them in, you layer on all the stuff about you know Jewish globalist conspiracy, whatever. So, um, anyway. <laughs> so. Thank you. Um, yes. Sorry. Hi, here. Diana. Um, we have a question from Shekinah. She asks, who gets to define racism, the oppressed or the oppressor? And that's for anyone on the panel. <laughs> this is quite a group I know. tonight. <laughs> and for me, that is the essence of power. Who gets to define what it means when Colin Kaepernick takes a knee at the beginning of a football game? Does his intent matter? Does the perception of others watching that game matter? Um, or do the people who own teams in the NFL have the power to determine what that act really means? In my book, I talk a lot. I have a chapter about gender and sexual identity. And I start that chapter with the story of a man named Leonard Matlevich, who was a veteran, fought in the Vietnam War, um, you know, Purple Heart, Bronze Medal. And on his tombstone, it says, the military gave me medals for killing a man and a dishonorable discharge for loving one. And when I was doing the research and talking to the descendants about why that was so important, who had the power to determine what his worth was to this country? Who had the power to determine? And he thought he was doing a good thing by coming forward to his superiors and saying, I am a gay man and I'm an excellent member of our armed forces. Let me show you that these two things can be compatible. And instead he received a dishonorable discharge. So currently I think the people who have the power to make those decisions are the people who control important assets like economics like access to a school, the same people who can determine whether if you break a student code, you get to stay or you get, you know, sort of a warning for that. I think it is unfair to expect those who have been most disadvantaged to then deny how power is unevenly distributed in our country. All right, um, this is another question for Dr. Kaufman. Um, this audience tonight is very white. Um, would your presentation or message be different to a different audience? And, and maybe you've given this talk before. And if so, how might it 
be different if the composition of the audience were different? <laughs> well, I have given a talk to the Pan-African Society in London, um, so that was a very different audience. Uh, but it wouldn't, I don't think I would change it at all, really. It's just um, I think we have to recognize that there is racism and we have to continue, continue to work to, to try and, and, and reduce it, absolutely. So I'm not denying and incarceration is an example of that, particularly for, for low-level misdemeanors. I think there's too much of that in the U.S. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I also think that you, you can't, I, I particularly think that you can't have an over, again, you cannot define these concepts too expansively. They're sometimes weaponized for political purposes. I mean, if you are going to say that the discussion of immigration levels is racist, you have to ask yourself what might be the downstream consequences of, of doing that. Uh, it may work for a while, but you're then now opening up room for somebody who's willing to go there. It might be Donald Trump. It might be somebody you don't like, like the Sweden Democrats. So maybe it's be more responsible to actually say, no, actually, it's legitimate to have a debate about immigration, even if it's not about economics, even if it is about the speed of ethnocultural change. I actually don't think that is a racist issue. I mean, if you want to have your country white and pure, that's racism. If, but you can have a negotiated rate of change based on immigration. So I wouldn't change the message, uh, you know, in a different audience. And, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, so a number of you talked about a trend in um, the way that people decide politics. Does this trend suggest that age and gender and group affiliations and politics are going to take a backseat in the near future in American policies? So one of the things that's really interesting when we think about partisan realignment in recent years is that it's not just the fact that you've got racial and ethnic minorities moving into the Democratic Party and you've got white people increasingly moving into the Republican Party. That is a fact and that's a very important facet of um, American political life moving forward. But there's also been some polarization along lines of racial attitudes. So whites who hold more racially resentful views or more racially prejudicial views are more likely to find themselves in the Republican Party. And I think, yeah, a lot of these identities um, along lines of race, racial attitudes, along religion, are becoming more central to people's party identities than some of these other demographic cleavages. There's this great book um, by Liliana Mason, um, and published last year, where she talks about the fact that in, in the past, Democrats and Republicans along a lot of these demographic lines didn't look that different from one another. Now that they do, part of why we're seeing increasing polarization in the United States and increasing sort of dislike across party lines is because we Republicans look so much like each other, and Demogra Democrats are sort of this hodgepodge of, of everyone else. And um, so, yeah, so the, the short answer to the question is like, yes, these these sort of age and gender. Um, identities are becoming far less important than racial identities and then even party identities. Party identities are becoming like a, another identity to most of us. Like our attachment to our party identity in itself is sort of the same as our attachment to um, maybe our religious group or some of these other identities that we have. Um, this is a question for the whole panel. Um, an audience member asks, is there a way for us as white people to explain to other whites that they should care about the realities of people of color in the country? So I would say I really like the premise of that question because the most meaningful change in this country isn't going to happen when people who look like me come and address an audience that looks like this. 
the most meaningful, lasting change is when people start having conversations with the people that they encounter most often. You know, for me, faith is very important. Again, grew up in Lynchburg, right? That became this central organizing space. And it was interesting that you had these masses of people in Lynchburg who shared a religious identity, but on Sunday morning you would never know because our churches were so segregated and are continued to be. So I think people have to have conversations, and it's not just, we have this conversation over dinner, it's not just a moral question of why you should care about people who may not look like you. Let's look at it from an economic perspective, right? If you are living in a state like South Carolina that is being decimated by the opioid crisis, and there are people battling addiction who live in a rural community where there are no longer medical centers there because all of the changes in funding have led to doctors moving out or centers being shut down, it has an impact on the quality of life and the health of your community. If you're an entrepreneur and you cannot develop the workforce that is indigenous to your county because of those things, then it matters. It matters that the U.S. locks up more people than any other country in the world and that those people are disproportionately black and brown. So if you're not convinced that you need to care about people of color, care about it in the perspective of how what is happening to other communities has a direct effect on you and people who look like you and people that you care about. I want to add one thing. So I want to add one thing because I think about this question when I think about my first year freshman coming into my um, classes on race. And these are students who are very predisposed to care a lot about race, right? They're taking my class because they, you know, want to go off into the world and be like social justice warriors, right? You know, they use this language. And, uh, but I say this to say that there are people who are predisposed to want to sort of care about people who don't look like them. And what I learned quickly, and this is regardless of whether my students are white or black or, you know, whatever the color of the skin is or race or ethnicity, they, they arrive and they know nothing about what I mean by this power difference. Rates of incarceration in the United States, they don't know anything about that. They don't know about differences in hiring policies and discrimination in the labor market. Um, this is completely new information to the vast majority of them. And so I think part of why things like uh, White History Month doesn't sound that problematic to a lot of people is because the fact that there are these big differences in power and resources, is, and the fact that structural racism exists, this is something that a lot of people just don't know about. So part of our job isn't just to convince someone to like care about someone, it's to convince them and help them understand that the reality of being a white person in the United States and the life that you live, for the most part, is really different than the reality of a lot of people of color in the United States. All right. Um, I believe we have time for one more. Okay. Um, this is for Dr. Kaufman. Your data shows a dramatic split in views of immigration based on identified party in 2016. Until then, white views regarding immigration were similar between Democrats and Republicans. Does this mean party identity is flexible, meaning that people change parties based on immigration beliefs? or that immigration beliefs are flexible, meaning that people change their views to be consistent with their party. What does either factor suggest? Good luck. 
Well, is that on the card? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really good political science question because that's exactly, exactly the kind of thing we talk about is uh, how much of this is switching and how much of this is party queuing where the party takes a different stance and people follow. Maybe it, with Republicans it might be the attitudes towards Russia, for example. Um, so yeah, I think both are at work. I think that the Republican, the increase in um, restrictionism amongst white Republicans is, is partly driven by switching. I kind of calculated it was about 50% switching and 50% queuing, whereas the Democrats becoming more liberal on immigration seem to be more about party queuing and media queuing. So the answer is both matter. I, I think the queuing probably matters a little bit more, especially for the Democrats. Um, so a good question, a good political science question. Yeah. And it's always good to end on political science. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you to our speakers. Thank you to the Riley Institute and Ollie for their work in bringing all of this together. Thank you as our audience for your attention and your good questions. Uh, remember that if you'd like to purchase a book uh, or you'd like to talk to Dr. Kaufman afterwards, I, the books and Dr. Kaufman will be in the lobby. Uh, I hope all of you will join us next week for Derek Black, who will tell the story of his journey from a leader in the white nationalist movement to an outspoken critic. As a university professor, I am delighted to say that his liberal arts education was a major reason for that transformation. <laughs> uh, he will be joined by NPR's Sarah McCammon uh, for a conversation about how the language of white nationalism is permeating our culture. You will not want to miss this. We will be in McAllister Auditorium, and I hope to see you then. Thank you for a wonderful evening.